Michael Narowski, co-edited The Making of Modern Poetry in Canada, compiled the concise bibliography of English-Canadian literature, and edited the critical views on Canadian writer series for McGraw-Hill Ryerson. He has written for Encyclopedia Americana, the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Oxford Companion to 20th Century Poetry. Narowski is Professor Emeritus at Carleton University in Ottawa. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Good to be here. <laughs> we are going to talk about Contact Press, an important Canadian publishing house. Why are they important? Well, because it, I think, bridged the gap between uh, purely commercial and the sort of super uh, uh, ex experimental and uh, really gave modernism uh, an outlet, an opportunity, modernism in Canada, an opportunity to bring the new poets out. The ones who followed the sort of phase of high modernism, uh, because in around 1950, the key modernists like Eliot and Pound and so on had were passing away or mm -hmm. passed on, or were no longer really uh, producing it. Yeah, least. doing yeah. the important work. So the new generation had to find something, and of course we know that people like Charles Olson, etc., came up to Sid Gorman in the States um, and began to make uh, a name for themselves. And uh, the Canadian, Canadian con sort of counterpart uh, would have been Contact Press. And Contact Press, I think, arose chiefly out of the fact that Louis Dudek had spent time in, in New York uh, when he was studying at Columbia. He had met some of these people. He met Gorman and others. He met Charles Olson, of course. Uh, and he came back to Canada and he told Ray Souster, our friend Ray, uh, what was happening and showed himself the books, contemporary little magazines, and sort of had a bit of a gathering at uh, his mother-in-law's farm in Charlemagne, Quebec, and he had these magazines and he showed them. I think Ray was, I'm surprised that Ray Sousta was there, because he never traveled, but anyway, or did travel much. Irving Layton was there and others, I guess. Oh, John Sutherland, perhaps. John Sutherland, definitely. So he said, this is what's happening, you know, in the, in the big world out there. And I think that that was, in a way, uh, planting a seed for, for Ray Souster, because Ray then thought of Contact Magazine, as you know, came out in 52, lasted for a dozen issues or so, and then the Contact Press, in which he... Same year, though, wasn't it? Yeah, 52? Started, yeah. yeah, but of course, Contact Press outlasted the magazine. Yeah. Ray had another magazine later on called Combustion in 1960, so it kind of was a bit of an overlap. There was a gap. The Contact Magazine, 52-54, and then, of course, Contact Press, 52-66, I guess, uh, and then Combustion, 60-62 or something. So all of these things were happening, but they were all, I think, seeded by that stuff that Louis brought back, which is not to say that the, it was American, because Louis was not keen on the American influence at all, you know, and that's why he didn't like Black Mountain, and he didn't like Olson, and he didn't like all that school, but Ray was more susceptible to it, and... Uh, when he started to publish Combustion, he, of course, was much more open to the American writers and, that's a, who sent him stuff uh, all the time, bombarded him and tried to tell him what to do. It was a curious kind of tug of war for Ray Souster's soul. And I'm see, I seem to be focusing on Ray because he was in many ways central, you know, although he was so self-effacing working in the bank. Just like Elliot. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was very, very important presence. The American influence was very strong, you know. They pulled Leighton over. To, to some extent, you know. But what does that mean? What was it that they had that we didn't have? Well, they seemed to have more energy. There wasn't that much going on here. 
And uh, I think the Canadian uh, situation was always a struggle between uh, the avant-garde wanting to express itself and on the other hand a rather conservative and traditional sort of establishment. You know, the, the major presses were not open too, too much. For example, if you look at Ryerson Press, they had their little chapbook series, yeah. tiny, tiny little books, and Louis mm-hmm. Dudek published them. And I think Ray Souster did too. Uh, Leighton never did because Leighton was such a crazy guy that you know people were worried about publishing his stuff. So you were always contending. And in, in a way, if you look at what I wrote in, in, in that study of Contact Press, if you look at uh, that problem that, that Louis, Ray and all, they all felt that somehow they were stymied and con- constrained by the fact that the big presses were not open to it. I would also think that part of the problem was that there was not really a bohemian, in quotation marks, kind of atmosphere. There wasn't much of an audience for it. It's the old story, you know, like if you build it, they will come. Later on, it began to grow not too much later than the beginnings of contact press. By the late 50s, things were beginning to happen in Montreal uh, and Toronto too, because they had, they had the Bohemian Embassy, the readings, etc. The readings were important, you know, very important. Because when the whole business of Kerouac and then Ginsburg began to kind of hit America, it was like a breath of fresh air, I think, in Canada, because readings began to happen here. People began to hang out, and coffee houses sprang up. People talked about poetry. Yeah, yeah. and people like Al Purdy and, and Milton Acorn. But we're straying from contact press. A place like Paris or London is special because... It has a critical mass. In New York, too, I would assume. Well, yeah, in New York, too. But it has a critical mass, uh, and that critical mass is very, very important. Just in terms of the numbers of people that would come out to readings, that would buy the books, that would support exactly, this kind exactly, of activity. Yeah. Well, it, well, it was just starting to be there in Montreal, in Toronto, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, in Montreal, there's a bit of a tradition going back to the 1920s when people like Smith and Scott started to do things, uh, and in, you know, in the McGill Daily and Canadian Mercury, and periodicals like that, they were trying to stir up things. But it's, it's the old problem. You know, Montreal did not have any major Anglophone publisher that I can think of in the 50s. Decided to, to take the means of production un- exactly unto like, themselves. Like, exactly like Ezra Pound. Remember that uh, Louis Dudek had studied Pound's work, knew Pound, corresponded with Pound, and had been encouraged, you know. And there's a famous letter from Pound in which, when, when they're beginning to, to work on contact, and Pound writes, it says, make it new. He'd said that 35 years prior. Yeah, and he repeated it and repeated yeah. it, yeah. Uh, so it was a kind of in, very encouraging uh, prompting from, from Pound. Quite an enabler, wasn't he, Pound? Very much so. He, uh, much he so. really was, was supportive of so many poets. Yeah, he had, he had a very persuasive way, obviously. He had connections. Uh, he was busy. He was a literary busybody. Mm. really a literary busybody because you look at his correspondence and so on he was into everything you know yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, was everywhere too London, Paris and then eventually in Rapallo in Italy it's a great tragedy that he fell into that sort of right wing fascist stuff which of course it ultimately destroyed his reputation I think put him in an insane asylum too well yeah exactly you know mm-hmm. so that was enough anyway so they were encouraged you talk about them being a bridge then Obviously, Leighton was a very important uh, author for them. Leighton was, was, I think, self-consciously self-serving in many ways. Because if you look at his career, when he's published, when he publishes books with Northern Review, or at least with uh, John Sutherland's uh, First Statement Press, 
a couple of books, two or three books of his, and Betty Sutherland, who was his wife, designed the books and so on. So it's you know Irving looks after himself, and in contact starts, and Irving looks after himself as well. If you look at the correspondence, not that there's that much correspondence between him and uh, Dudek because they lived in the same city, so yeah, talked on the phone. But uh, you have a sense, uh, and that's why he, as soon as he spots the American thing, and is off to 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 Black Mountain, and is even made a, a, a kind of outside editor of Black Mountain Review. He appears in the title page under Masthead. Mm. And then, of course, he's discovered, so to speak, by Jonathan Williams, and improved binoculars comes out. Using the word enabling, contact press makes it possible because, of course, he did come out with the first book, Cerberus, who was part of, of contact press. Yeah. Uh, he cooperated with Louis to create the Canadian anthology that they published, also the first publication of contact press. So um, it was very much an, an, a, a, a deliberate attempt to shape Canadian poetry, you know, move it in a certain direction. Um, so Leighton was a participant and you know, also in many ways a contributor, but uh, then as soon as Jack McClelland spotted him, we don't have a proper literary history of this country, poetry in this country. There's been isolated articles with Francis has written, stuff, etc., etc., and we have, we have disagreed, profound disagreements with her. Um, although she knew Louis, she studied with Louis, etc., and we taught at the same university, members of the same department. I didn't think that Wynne really had a, a, a sort of profound understanding of what motivated and drove that modernist sort of phase in Canadian poetry. What did uh, she get wrong? Well, I think that. What did she get wrong? She's gone now. I don't want to say anything really, except that we. That I did not quite see things in the same way as she saw them, and I'll leave it at that. It's probably a, a nicer thing to do. Okay. Um, what did she? What did she see wrong? She saw Leighton as the great prophet of Canadian modernism. Leighton is a very important poet, but he is not all important. He's not everything. He's an important figure, but not a key figure. From that standpoint, and, and I have a bit of a bias here, because I was extremely friendly with Louis Dudek. Yeah. But look at the work that Louis Dudek did, in, even in Contact Press, and in Delta Magazine, and in Delta Books, when we published Delta. He was always doing stuff, trying to sort of promote younger writers, move them along, I mean, not always agreeing with them. They don't, didn't always like him. Leighton was, uh, yeah. was a poet, period. Yeah, well, so was Pound a poet. Mm -hmm. But he did things. I mean, you know, there's. You, can but you don't have to like uh, Pound to, to admire or not admire his poetry. Yeah, and uh, I guess it's a kind of literary activism. Some yeah. people have it, some don't. Yeah. So Jack McLeod, I guess Jack, who was a very perceptive individual mm. and a very very important publisher, capable of uh, spotting talent. Well, absolutely, and of course he had the he had the vehicle. The vehicle was McLeod and Stewart. When he finally took up modern Canadian poetry. He published Earl Birdie, he published Leonard Cohen, he published Irving Layton. I think he starts with Irving Layton. And then he arranges for this tour across Canada, the CBC following with cameras, readings, readings again. You know. He also used Frank Neufeld, the designer. Yeah, and he did. Uh, Neufeld yeah. produced some beautiful work for Layton, with Layton's books. That's true, but at the same time, it's, uh, you know, the readings which, which really made this a big thing because people for the first time encountered these poets and they were you know nice books well promoted and uh, touring the country etc 
had not happened. I guess it happened before with Bliss Carmen, but it was a very different kind of situation. But you see, Leighton probably would have been a different creature had he not had the springboard of Contact Press. So, in effect, Contact Press gave them some form of legitimacy, didn't it? Well, it, gave, it, it was exactly that. It was a, it was a proper avant-garde literary press. It was discovering people, and it published all kinds of people. John Newlove, George Bowring, etc. All the big names. All the big names. Don't know if they published Michael Ondaatje. I'm not sure. I can't remember. I saw Ondaatje in uh, one of the... But uh, that's in the New Wave, yeah. yeah. I think that's that a bit was, later, though. Yeah, that's 66, I guess. That was the first time he appeared in a book. Before that, he had been in magazines. So now he's collected in a book. But Ondaatje, of course, is younger than Souster and Leighton. He's the next generation already, you know. He's Margaret Atwood's generation. Perhaps you could talk a bit about the actual books themselves. Is there anything special, or was it mostly just sort of putting them in book format and getting them out? Well, they tried various printers. Did they use special kind of paper? Did they use some designers? Not really. There is not a recognizable format. If you were to line up all of Contact Press books, what would strike you is that they're all so different. Uh, and I think that is partly due to the fact that sometimes there was the guiding hand would be Louis, sometimes it would be Ray Souster. Peter Miller came into the picture as well, uh, joined the press and helped uh, Ray out, produced a couple of, published a couple of books of his own, with, obviously got his own designers, because in many ways it was a, a, a cooperative as well, uh, which meant that you, know, you, looked out of, you looked after yourself. You had to do that, uh, because there was no central office or anything like that. They wrote back and forth, sent manuscripts back and forth, but there was no central location. And I'm not even sure how they stored these books. I guess the authors got most of the books, and the principals like Louis, Leighton, and Souster probably got a few copies each for having given them the opportunity to publish. But uh, there was, as I said, there was no formal institution which was Contact Press, which is, of course, not unusual for little presses. Yeah, they run out of basements and apartments and so on, yeah. Virtual company in a way. Well, it was, yeah, before before that idea had come into, into being, yeah. I'm speaking with Michael Narowski, who wrote the history and the checklist of the contact press. When did that come out? 1970. Then it was reprinted in 71. What joy might a collector get from collecting the contact press? Well, I think that the first thing to remember or to bear in mind is that the collector must want to collect literary materials. Things, everybody collects, uh, and people collect the most incredible things. So obviously we have a, a gene in, yeah. in us that you know, drives us to collect. It's a hunting-gathering gene. Although when they hunted and gathered, they consumed. Collectors keep <laughs> the stuff going. You might decide that you want to collect uh, detective novels, uh, or you might decide to c- collect white circle pocketbooks. You know, there, there's a whole range of things. But you're not answering my question, though, and that is, what joy might they get from collecting if, assuming they loved this period of, of Canadian poetry and poetry making, what joy might they get? Well, I guess the satisfaction of... I don't think that anyone that I can think of, other than perhaps a library or a national library or something like that, has a complete set. Part of it is the hunt that you were talking about hunting down the individual books, you know, putting together a set, a full set. How many uh, books did they produce altogether? 30 or 40. So it's, it's not, not that many. It's not an impossible task, no. Uh, these things, you, you come across them, I'm assuming. Yeah. Now they're, they're beginning to cost a lot of money. You know, the early Leightons 
because of his reputation, of course, you're no longer going to get it for five or ten dollars. Right. So unless you're very lucky. Well, yeah, you might find him at a Salvation Army sale or something. Yeah. But if you go to uh, Abe Books or to, or to dealers, they now know what these things are worth. And New Wave Child, we were looking at it. I looked at uh, on Abe Books, and the thing is being sold for three hundred fifty dollars. Although, if you look down the list, it comes down to a hundred bucks. So you know, maybe it's less desirable, maybe it's more battered or whatever, but a, a very good, in very good condition. There's the other thing as a collector. You know, are you collecting just the artifact or are you collecting it for its content or for the pleasure of owning the whole set? Some of these small presses uh, are fairly easy to, to collect. For example, first statement books. I don't think that John Sutherland published more than seven or ten titles altogether. Quite an important person in the... And the early ladies in that in that uh, series are a thousand, two thousand dollars now. But what you're doing is you're, you're collecting the name then. Yeah. You see, so uh, you've got a bit of a problem. If you're a collector, you say, okay, I want to collect first statement books. Well, uh, you'll run into that immediately, you know, into, into huge expenses. One or two books will cost money, cost, cost a lot of money. What about the actual books themselves then? Were they mostly paperback? In, in contact? Yeah. I don't think that there was a hardcover. Oh no, I lie. I think Peter Miller, his books were in hardcover. He brought out hardcover books. Yeah, I think he's, his are the only ones. He worked in, in, his, in, I think he worked in the same bank as Ray Souster, which is how they knew one another. Um, a Torontonian, he had, uh, I guess, some means. And he came into the press and helped Ray out uh, because Ray Souster had very modest resources. To, to go on. Some of them were published in stiff boards. Good tea. Well, that's good if you like it. We talked to some extent about the philosophy, and that is basically what to sort of stir things up in Canada to bring in a, some of the energy that was evident in the United States. The reason that it was set up in the first place was so that some of these impressive young voices could be heard. Who hadn't happened yet, that's the important thing I think, because at the beginning when uh, Dudek, uh, Souster and Leighton discussed the idea of the press, it's a cooperative venture, they produced Cerberus, which is a collective anthology of the writing of the, the poetry of the three of them. Mm. Uh, the idea was I think primarily to give themselves a vehicle. Dudek had published a couple of books with Ryerson Press. But they were not satisfied. Leighton published books with the first statement. They felt that for some, well, poor John Sutherland was maybe not quite what they wanted their poetry to be. So they kind of drifted away from him. So they said, well, we'll get our own press going. And uh, when they got their own press going, well, then, of course, others began to be attracted to it. And uh, it became a poetry press for poets and writers. If you look at the titles, you'll see immediately that people <laughs> drifted to them. You have uh, Cerberus, which is the, the kickoff thing. A collection of the... The three of them, yeah. the Canadian poems, which was edited by Louis Dudek and with, uh, with Leighton's help, and that was intended as an anthology to present some of the Canadian poetry that was presumably not being offered in anthologies because it was found to be either too controversial or too avant-garde. So there you have these two books, which was you know, with which they started the press basically, and then in '53 you see it's Leighton and Souster, and in '54 it's Louis Dudek. And then Leighton and Souster in '55, it's Leighton. So you have them, and then only later on, '57, and it starts opening up to other writers. 
So basically, it was a, just a vehicle for them to produce their own work. Initially, yeah, which is, of course, traditionally the, the case with little presses. And now, I wonder how successful those early uh, runs were. Did they go into multiple printings? Never. Or I never, don't think so, never. Typically, what were the runs? 500? 500 copies, yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah. I know that Canadian Poems, the anthology, went into subsequent printings, but that's because they were used in universities. But they were doing something different then? I think so, yeah. Can you talk a bit about what it was that they were doing that was different from what the establishment was, was doing? Well, uh, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves, who or what was the establishment? Hmm. Who were the big names that were being published in Canada at that time, I suppose? Uh, name that comes to mind immediately is E.J. E. Pratt, who you know, was a very big figure on the horizon. Macmillan was yeah. publishing him happily. What about Finch? Robert Finch, but Finch, no. Finch came out with new pro in, in New Provinces and then came out with the, later on with uh, Oxford. There was that, and I've collected some of it, the Indian File series. That's McClellan and Stewart, yeah. And that was late... 40s. It goes for about 10 years. But there's not more than 10 books in that. No, that's uh, right, that there's only nine of them. Yeah, it had people like A.G. Bailey, who was an older writer, you know, a New, a New Brunswicker on Nova Scotia. John Glasgow had a book in that. P.K. Page was in there. But you see, but P.K. Page belonged to, to an earlier generation. She'd been part of the preview group in Montreal. More of the Frank Scott preview 1940s. This is the 1950s heading into the 1960s. This is definitely a, a new generation and I, I think seriously that there is a, a sort of a, a point at which things sort of shift in the new direction and that new direction is the new poetry that was going to eventually come out in the 60s. And what was that? Well, probably many things. The, the strong influence is some of the writers who came out of the West Coast uh, and the beginnings, you see people like Bowring and, and others who were part of British Columbia. Mm. They also are a younger generation. They were influenced by what was happening in San Francisco. Uh, they had writers come up. Earl Burney, who always felt that he had been somehow unjustly ignored or whatever, although he hadn't been, who was teaching at the UBC and was running the Creative Writing School, brought people up to do readings in the early 60s. And his students, some of whom were people like Frank Davy and George Bowring and others, they were interested in what the Americans were saying. So you see, again, this, this is a, an influence that keeps lapping at the shores of Canada, you know. It's like little waves that keep, keep coming in. But what, what's the nature of the, that wave, or those waves? Is it less uh, interested in formal verse structure, or is it, what is it? Well, I think that to, to generalize, and probably unfairly, it's a poetry which is more self-aware, self-interested. Look at, for example, Leighton and, and Souster and Dudek in their poetry, they talk about life on the streets, as it were, the social realism mm. of the times. Uh, they are true urban poets, uh, and they take their inspiration from that. City Hall Street, you know, De Bunion Street in Montreal, uh, Ray Souster writing about you know, to Toronto, uh, also in a very sort of urban way, in an urban awareness is, is present. Mm -hmm. These others were more concerned with what they were feeling, their own feelings. And the fact that they began to think more and more in terms of how you deliver the poem, the poem became a spoken thing. The readings helped them to do that, because to some extent poetry became the theater of reading. 
you know, you can read as they're found, of course, you can read. But look at someone like Allen Ginsberg. Howl is the spoken poem, you know. Well, yeah, the, the Powell on the page is, is nowhere near what it is spoken. It's, exactly. It's just exactly, uh, yeah. not terribly impressive. So, so that would be a, 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 another characteristic then. Yeah, I would think so. You know, I, tension began to develop very quickly be, between what was coming at us from the West Coast and what was kind of seen as the poetry here in, in Central Canada. But Souster was also being besieged hmm. by American writers who were sending him poetry all the time. To try and get him to publish To them? publish it, yeah, in his magazines, sure. Because writers like Robert Creeley, Sid Corman, and so on, uh, they too were beginning or starting their careers, you know, and they didn't have many outlets in spite of, you know, we think of America as having been very open to the avant-garde and so on. But there were also strong traditions and well-established writers there uh, and well-established publishing policies and agendas. So um, I know that Creeley, for example, is instrumental. He's an important American modernist or postmodernist. Yes, the key word here is postmodern, whatever that means. Creeley, in his very early days, is living in Spain and he's instrumental in bringing out some early Irving Layton stuff, just as he's publishing his own in Mallorca. Creeley had a connection with a Spanish printer, basically. Okay. And he could do it cheaply. And a lot of these were self-financed, you know. The Blue Propeller, I'm thinking, is, I think, a, a, a book of Leighton's, which I think was published in, in Spain. Uh, and I know that Louis did one book in London, or had it designed in London, because there was a Polish printer there. So there are these, these rather personal things. But, I mean, that's beside the point. Once you get into the 1960s, you also get into a, a new phenomenon. A new phenomenon is, of course, readings, explosion of Canadian literature, is teaching of, of the literature in the universities. Mm -hmm. So you have an instant audience. Um, when Leonard Cohen came to Carleton here, the hall was packed. In the 60s? Well, yeah, sure. When he had already had, you know, his, let us compare mythologies, did not make his great reputation, but his subsequent books, mm -hmm. of course, you know, which, and Jack McClellan picked up on that, yeah. promoted it, etc., etc. So there we had, you know, a poet. But uh, Leonard was very much aware of poetry, I think, and its performance potential. Mm -hmm. So much so that he put, he put music to it. And he became <laughs> a, a great, a popular artist. Uh, and I think he's a good one, Thank primarily you. because he is a poet first, and his songs make sense. They're not just one-liners. Yeah, they are. Exactly, because yeah. they're poems. But you see, what he did is he bridged it, took an important step uh, for poetry. I mean, you know, Leighton was a good reader. He was a very dynamic reader. But Dudek was not. Uh, Dudek was rather um, sort of academic. Ray Souster also rather subdued. Uh, but I think both in the case of Leighton and Cohen, uh, the performance aspect was important in promoting the poetry because People who read it, who went to listen to it, heard it, went out and bought the books. This is a real entertainment. Yeah, yeah. It? it had real gripping quality to it. No uh, contact edition of uh, Cohen, though. But Cohen's first book came out with Louis McGill Poetry Series, which had four or five books. Students of Louis, who Louis felt were, had promise, and he brought out uh, Cohen's Let Us Compare Mythologies through McGill. This is his own press. He called it the McGill Poetry Series. I wonder why he didn't put it into contact. Maybe he felt that Leonard wasn't ready for a contact because, the, as we just saw, the early contact press books were all Leighton, Dudek, and Souster. By then, 
Leonard had publicized comparative mythologies, had done some readings, had been picked up by McClellan and Stewart. He no longer needed contact press. Yeah. He was launched. And so from that standpoint, the whole business of Leonard discovering uh, the theater of poetry readings, I think is very important. Mm. Uh, Louis had no use for that, you know. Mm. He always felt that uh, it took away from the poetry because it said, when you make it an entertainment, then you are relieving the reader of the task of reading it seriously, because the reader sits back and kind of wallows in the, you know, in the whole excitement of the reading. Well, it's it's true, isn't it? It's almost like how television basically does it for you. You know, it it's, it substitutes for your own imagination. It's the same idea, I guess. If the, the strength of the poem is reliant upon the poet being up there performing it, yeah. then it's not the same thing, is Absolutely. it, on the page? It doesn't make demands on you. A reading does not make demands on you, essentially, you know, that's the whole thing. And of course, not every poet is a good reader. Should the poet suffer because the poet can't deliver a proper performance? So, basically then, from, let's say, around 57, they start bringing in some new poets and they broaden their stable. I think, I think Leighton brought in Henry Moscovich against the wishes of Louis and of Souster, maybe, I don't know about Ray. First tension began to develop. Uh, over that, that uh, Moscovich, who was a great disciple of mm. Leighton, I think he had actually been a student of Leighton's, and he fancied himself as a young, new young Leighton or something, you know. Mm. So he published a couple of books, and The Serpent Inc., I guess, was his first, it was a contact press book. That, and then they began to open the doors, I suppose, to other writers. Any t particularly desirable titles, in your opinion? Desirable in what way? Well, I suppose just in the quality of the poems. Well, Moscovich comes out. He's an early bird here at 58, 56, 56. What do you think of his poetry? Louis was right that it was a bit premature for him to bring out a book. So what is this? He's 15 years old? Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous, isn't I it? ask yourself, what the hell's going on there? But Henry, I remember him. He's dead now, poor fellow. He was a funny guy. I mean, he would call me up in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, phone would ring. That's what is this? Henry here, what is it what? Well, I've got a poem I want to read to you. He was so full of himself. He'd send me stuff and he'd write and think, here's something that's worth publishing, unlike the other crap that you publish. Uh, so and then, of course, in 57, they brought out the book by D.G. Jones. Now, Jones is a good poet. And he went on to win the Governor General's. Not with that book, I think, with a later one. They brought out W.W.E. Ross, an early Canadian modernist. Souster was very high on him. And then they brought out Frank Scott. And then in 58, Again, more Louis Dudek, Ron Everson, and then the Montreal poet, Ken McCrovey. And if we're talking about uh, 58, 60 now, we're sliding into sort of modern times. And then towards the end, of course, at the very end, Anne Hiver, in 66, Margaret Atwood, she won the Governor General's. With it. The Circle Game. And that's that's uh, contact. Yeah, and then she immediately republished with, an, with a Nancy, because she had become part of a Nancy. And so she took the thing to a Nancy and so with on. Dennis Lee. Yeah, and began to, began to build a reputation for herself over there. So, just if we could uh, summarize then, how would you position this press? And again, if you could talk to why it would be a good thing for someone to go out and try and get them all. Well, it was an important press, as I said earlier on. It uh, acted as a bit of a bridge, it, it acted as a launching pad for important Canadian poets, gave many of them their first first significant break, helped them launch their careers. And it was all, as I said, a kind of 
baggy pants poets cooperative you know sometimes they finance the odd book I wonder for example who paid for the circle game I'd dearly like to, to, to know was it Ray Souster was it Margaret herself Peggy Atwood who paid for it I don't know someone should ask her that question she had just come back from the States, I think, when she did that. Studying there, yeah. At Harvard, yeah. yeah. I would say, uh, you know, there's a, an intriguing quality to it. And it's not an insuperable task to assemble a complete contact press. If you had, let's say, $5,000 to spend, you'd be able to do it? I would imagine. I would imagine. Maybe the odd book might cost you, well, through the old story, you know, but... Layton, yeah. Yeah, and also, uh, I know that the first statements, Leighton's, as I said, uh, are very pricey now, but the contact press, Leighton's, maybe are less so, but still you're looking at a few hundred dollars probably, you know, per... Just a final question. We talked a bit about it on the phone, and, and that is there's a connection that some have made between a contact and Coach House Press, and that Coach House took the reins from contact and served a, uh, or played a similar role in the Canadian poetic scene. Would yeah. you say that's accurate? I wouldn't think so. I would think that Coach House maybe learned a lesson or two from what contact had done and they were I think in many ways similarly inclined but that's also already a younger generation. Victor Coleman and others there are a younger generation. The connection there might have been through Ray Souster who was in Toronto and who knew these people and likely encouraged them and not probably published them in his magazine Combustion and so on. I forget when, when Coach House started. It's right around the 66. Yeah. It's right around the time contact stopped. Yeah. Publishing. But you know, we started Delta Canada in 65 because Louis was dissatisfied with, with contact and uh, wanted out. Why was he that? Wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't keen, first of all, the Moscovich affair yeah. had riled him and then the second one was Peggy Atwood's book. He didn't like the he way she just He wasn't left. keen on it, no. Well he wasn't keen on the book no, itself, no, he even though it won the Governor General. Well book. it hadn't won anything at that point. You know it was just a, a book by a young poet. I think what's happening here is that Margaret Atwood is already part of that postmodernist wave and it was not Louis' bag, it was not Louis' thing and we were clearly uh, had come to a kind of forking in the road. Uh, and when we started Delta Canada, uh, I recall we went out to lunch with uh, Louis. We were walking back. We'd been talking about poetry, where poetry was going. He hadn't disconnected. This would have been around 64. Poetry had not disconnected yet. But the older generation was already identifiably the older generation. And uh, there was a new wave right there, which was not to Louis' liking. And he wasn't keen to go there. And was that Ray that was pushing that? Then? Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. yeah. And so he was open to the suggestion that maybe another little press might be a solution. Remember, he had started his own magazine, Delta, so he'd been publishing his own sort of his, his own ideas and poetry that he liked. And so when it was suggested to him that we should start Delta Canada, we took the name, in part, out of deference to him. As I said, I remember walking on Sherbrooke Street after lunch, we were wondering, you know, what was the new direction going to be? It wasn't at all clear, certainly not to us. Maybe it was clear to Louis. It wasn't clear to me. It and wasn't clear to, clear to Glenn Seabrass. Your involvement at that point was? Well, I was a good friend of Louis, you know. Uh, I'd been a student of his and I'd stayed a good friend of his. I was keen on the idea, of, of course, of promoting modern Canadian poetry. So I 
I had just started to teach it mm. at the university. So um, I said to him, we should start up a little press. Because we had a little magazine called Yes, which we started in 56, at the same time as Leonard Cohen's book had appeared, uh, Let's Compare Mythologies. Yes was a kind of perambulating little mag. It traveled with me. I went to university here and there. It traveled along with me. And we were even thinking of doing what we were going to call Yes Books. We were going to have a little press to, to publish poetry called Yes Books. We never did any Yes Books, but I was always keen on that idea. So talking to Louis about it, and I said, why don't we start a, a press? Since I sensed that he was not happy with contact. And he, he sort of took the bait. And he said, yeah, we'll do a press. And so that was in 64. And uh, I came back to Montreal that December of 64. And we met Ron Everson, who had been in the in contact press, Glenn Seabrass, myself, Louis Dudek, and a man called Colin Howard who was a graphic artist who worked with Ron Emerson. And they, they had a, a public relations firm. And so we started to talk, we talked about it, had dinner, and so in 65, the first Delta Calendar books appeared. Louis disconnected from contact, and contact shut down in 67, I think, because by then, Leighton was gone. I mean, yeah. gone from, from the little press stuff. He was too busy doing big things with, with Jack McClellan. Well, it served its purpose, hadn't it? For, For him. That's another point of dispute. I have with Wynne Francis, who attacked me afterwards. I hadn't realized that uh, she attacked me for misreading the thing, and I still believe that she was fundamentally wrong. But that Leighton was out to promote his career, first and foremost, understandably. Yeah. Uh, and he did. He followed a certain path in order to realize it. And that's profoundly different from what people like Souster did. You know, Souster helped promote other writers and worked for published magazines and did things. Leighton never did. You know, he was always kind of piggybacking on John Sutherland, piggybacking on Louis. Anyway, that's, that's not to malign him. No, no, he has a, a different, different way of doing things. Okay, so that takes us to Delta, and then it sounds like Delta's another story. Another story, absolutely. Just incidentally, how long does Delta go for? From 66 to 71. We did about 30 or 40 books. We operated out of Louis's house, and we had a kind of a, a little office thing, and uh, we hooked up with an American publisher called, called Unicorn Books. They distributed our stuff in California. Every weekend on Saturday we'd get together at Louis' house and uh, we would um, package books and process orders. Uh, our editorial board meetings were held during the, during the week. We had a Chinese meal. We'd go to the same Chinese restaurant always, <laughs> have a Chinese meal. And then on the weekend we'd work on the actual packaging and sending of the books. And we had a, at Glenn Seabrass was our business manager. And as a result of the Delta Canada thing, we hooked up with the people who, who printed that, Edition uh, d'Orfe, a French-Canadian uh, printer uh, in the East End of Montreal, and uh, uh, I became friendly with him. He had a really a bon of an old-fashioned press, set in, in hot type. Yeah, you can see that's uh, letterpress. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the, the fumes came out of the thing and so on. And then he had a little Heidelberg press, and he printed on that press and so on, and uh, this is all hand-bound, you know. Any big names in the Delta? Any big successes? Well, of course, we published Louis Collected Poems, we published Ron Everson, we published Eldon Greer, a few of them, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another fun project for the collector to go after Delta Absolutely. Books. Thank you for yeah, all my pleasure. Uh, filling us in on this important bridge. I've been speaking with Michael Norowski, 
who has had a, a lengthy career both editing and publishing Canadian poets and is currently Professor Emeritus at Carleton University in Ottawa. Thanks very much. My pleasure.